0: Hey there endurance junkie it is bloody good to have you here on the exponential performance podcast talking all things performance and how you can train smarter to get the best out of yourself on today's show we're going to dig into cycling performance where is it best to spend your hard earned money and time to improve your on the bike performance we also dig into cardiovascular issues with endurance athletes is this a myth or is it actually true and then we're talking about what's more important the body or the mind how can you train yourself to push through that pain barrier let's get into it Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast. Join sports scientist and performance coach Matty Graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are. All righty, let's jump into this thing. Episode 7 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. So just a bit of a follow-up from last week's podcast, Episode 6, in which I talked about the use of gelatin and using that for ligament and tendon injuries because it's been found in the research to increase the collagen production now i had quite a lot of people asking me about the source of gelatin that i was using and if uh, using collagen hydrosylate or hydrolyzed collagen would be better so i just wanted to touch a little bit on the differences between gelatin and collagen hydrosylate so gelatin you can and i did and that's what they used in the research uh... just the stuff from the supermarket so you can just buy it from the supermarket in a little packet uh... and it's, and it's really really cheap compared to say collagen hydrosylate that comes from the pharmacy or a health food store which the price goes up exponentially compared to gelatin from the supermarket so what is the difference what is the difference the source is the, is the same, no matter if it's gelatin or co- collagen hydrosylate or hydrolyzed collagen as it's sometimes called as well. The source is the same, it's still coming from bone skin or skin of animals um, and there is also some use of uh, scales from fish sources in that as well. So the collagen, sorry, the gelatin that was used in the research that we reviewed last week was using Uh, beef skin as their source of gelatin. But there are other sources out there. So what is the difference? The source is the same. What about the amino acid profile? If it is from the same source, let's say in this case beef, the amino acid profile is exactly the same between gelatin and collagen hydrosylate or hydrolyzed collagen. There is no difference. The only difference is Is that collagen hydrosylate has been broken down further okay so it's the same stuff it's just been processed more into let's say smaller bits compared to the gelatin the real differences come with how it actually responds in the real world uh, in the kitchen almost for gelatin only True gelatin only dissolves in hot water, so if you try mixing gelatin into cold water, you'll find it gets a little bit lumpy. And the first time I did, um, you know, use gelatin, this is what I did, I just mixed it up in some cold juice, and there was lumpy bits in it. What I do now is I mix it in with hot water, so it dissolves up a little bit better, and then I pour the cold water in on top of that, and you get quite a, you know, good mix as long as it doesn't cool down too much. Collagen hydrosylate, on the other hand, dissolves in both hot and cold water. Okay, so you can mix collagen hydrosylate into cold water, doesn't get lumpy, mixes up fine. Slightly better texture, some might say. And then gelatin causes liquids to turn into gel, and that's why it's used in, you know, jelly uh, and gummy bears, that sort of thing. That's why those turn into a jelly gummy substance, because of the gelatin. Collagen hydrosylate, on the other hand, because of the process of breaking it down, it no longer causes gels. Sorry, causes liquids to turn into gels. So those are the main difference between gelatin and collagen hydrosylate. In terms of the amino acid profile, which is what we are really interested in and is the key concern for using it for collagen um, production in the body, the amino acid profile is identical. So there's no need to worry about that. Depending on the source, it may be slightly different between different animals. However, apart from that, the only difference really is is the way it dissolves and what it actually does, turning that liquid into a gel solid form. So hopefully that clears up the questions about collagen versus gelatin. If you have any more questions about it, Um, or you've started using it to help sort out a little niggly tendon issue, let me know. Always interested to hear from you guys. How's my tendon injuries going at the moment? Really good, actually. This is the best week that I've felt. So I've been on the gelatin supplementation for about two weeks now, along with the skipping exercise, and also some eccentric and isometric uh, work in the gym to help sort these out. I really want to get on top of these because they are very, very niggly. So enough about that. Let's get into things today, and we're going to kick off with a Myth Buster section. So here it is. Over the last few years, there has been quite a lot of publicity around uh, athletes with heart problems and even athletes dying because of sudden you know, cardiac issues. And this leads to a lot of speculation, I guess, around uh, you know athletes and having these problems. Uh, and a lot of people think that they might be linked, i.e. the training that elite athletes do may lead to these heart issues. And what I wanted to do in MythBuster today was just have a bit of talk about this because it doesn't seem that it's actually correct. And I was reading through a wee article on the British Journal of Sports Medicine when I came across this interesting thing. And what it is is they did, did some like long-term research and bit of data analysis and gathering up um, a bunch of different results and that sort of thing. And what they came up with is that they found that elite athletes aren't actually at any higher risk of developing cardiovascular abnormalities compared to the average person. And this, is, this was quite interesting and kind of promising as well because I think a lot of people were scared off when this first came out that if I do too much endurance training, it's actually bad for me, bad for my heart. And there is a level of cardiac remodeling that happens um, in comparison to say non-athletes and this is just simply the the left ventricle left and right ventricle get larger and there's also a thickening of the heart wall depending on whether you're a strength athlete or an endurance athlete so the heart actually does does get bigger but these changes are largely benign um, and they found that um Looking at former elite and amateur athletes aged 40 to 70 years old, although they found this pattern of cardiac remodeling, these changes were quite benign, and they did not have any difference in other cardiac biomarkers that would suggest that there is a, a, an issue with their heart. So it's quite good to know as well. Uh, and then also another study looked at um, these these adaptations or changes in the heart in elite masters endurance athletes with a training history of 29 years on average. So they've been training for a long time, banked up a lot of endurance training and they found no difference between these athletes and a control group um, of non-athletes for either right or left ventricle volumes or cardiac biomarkers. So they found no difference whether you've done a bunch of endurance training or not you're not at any increased risk of having these cardiovascular abnormalities and that's quite promising because it seemed to scared a lot of people off when they first released you know when the stuff in the media keep coming out about a lot of high profile endurance athletes having heart problems and people were you know put off by it but there doesn't seem to be any reason to be scared in fact uh, an epidemiological study that analyzed uh, 15,174 Olympic medalists. That was found that these Olympic medalists lived on average 2.8 years more than the average population, independent of the, their country of origin or the type of sport that they performed. So it seems that there is not any risk increased risk or any reason to worry about your training and in terms of endurance activity causing heart problems and that these heart problems that have been coming out in these high profile athletes were potentially underlying or there already and just their endurance training or endurance racing competition have brought these to the surface. If they had been um, a sedentary individual, these probably would have gone unnoticed and wouldn't have caused them any problem. It was just when they wanted to push their limit. In saying that, if you think you have any issues with your heart or you've got any uh, worry about it at all, go and get it checked out by your doctor, get referred to a cardiologist and get these things figured out because you don't want them obviously causing problems if you do have underlying risk factors. So there you have it. Mythbuster for today elite athletes are at no higher risk of developing cardiovascular abnormalities compared to the average person let's crack in to lessons from the lab (laughs) it's alive it's alive In this week's Lessons from the Lab, I wanted to talk about improving cycling performance and how we should spend our time and money. Most of this information comes from a research paper titled Improving Cycling Performance, How We Should Spend Our Time and Money. And what it did is it was a bit of a meta-analysis of all of the research, or a lot of the research that was done around cycling performance and what gave the biggest gains in performance so what they've done is they've used mathematical modeling to test a whole bunch of different factors so there's internal factors such as training altitude training carbohydrate and caffeine and then also external factors body weight body position clothing uh, bicycle and also wheels and so what they did is scoured the research found all of these different results Um, from different studies so rather than just relying on one study to give the information they searched out a bunch of different studies and then they used those results to inform uh, a little bit of a model to help build a little bit of a model Um, and this model's been validated in terms of predicting power output um, and actual power measured in outdoor road cycling and it's found to be quite accurate so the mathematical model takes into account a bunch of different factors so what they did is they plugged a bunch of different numbers in and they got results of how much time you would save in a 40 kilometer time trial so this is not applicable to everything and we'll talk about that as we go because it was a time trial not say a road race So there is a a few caveats to this, and we will talk about those as we go through. So what I want to do is just walk through this and have a look at the different factors and how much performance change they found for a novice, an intermediate, and an elite cyclist. Overall, novices have the most to gain out of those three groups and that's because they're the least well-trained so any change is going to have a bigger difference at the elite level the changes that you make just give you small marginal gains those marginal gains obviously add up over time to produce you know the winning margin and the winning margin is smaller but overall novices have the most to gain here and so the first variable that they looked at or the first factor was training and what they found is that performance can increase up to about 5 to 10 percent in novice cyclists and that's a training program that includes high intensity intervals and sustained endurance efforts so you get about a 5 to 10 percent increase in performance on that 40 kilometer time trial for those athletes that are well trained or intermediate, there's a there's room for about a two to four percent improvement with training. And elite athletes, there's a smaller improvement there of about one to three percent. So training has the ability to have the biggest change in performance. Um, but as you improve your performance and you become a better athlete, the actual amount that you can improve decreases it's called the law of diminishing returns the more you do something the smaller the gains are so the next variable they looked at was altitude training and they scaled the research and what they came up with is that training at altitude depending on the method we're looking at the ones that work which are typically uh, live high train low so the athletes live at altitude then come down to lower altitudes to train, so that their training intensity is not sacrificed. May elicit uh, approximately two percent increase in performance. So, what does that look like in the real world? It's a thirty-four second decrease, uh, second decrease in a forty-kilometer time trial for novice cyclists, and about a twenty-six second decrease in decrease in time for the trained cyclist and 23 second decrease in time for the elite cyclist. So they're going about 23 to 4, uh, 34 seconds faster, depending on if you're novice or elite. Now, the thing with altitude training, as you can see there, the 2% increase in performance comes at quite a high price. Unless you live at altitude, uh, the the ability to do altitude training is quite expensive whether you've got to travel somewhere to the top of the mountain, sleep up there, commute down the hill, or use supplementary oxygen while at altitude to train, the cost is quite high for that 2% increase versus training where they, you know, you can get up to a, a 10% increase in performance if you're a novice athlete. Moving on from uh, altitude training, let's have a look at nutrition. Ingesting carbohydrate um, may increase 40 kilometer time trial, performance power by two to three percent okay two to three percent so it's quite significant so for a novice cyclist you're looking at around a 42 second decrease in time so you're going 42 seconds faster for the well-trained cyclist it's about 36 seconds and for elite level athletes we're looking at about a 32 second decrease in time for that 40-kilometer time trial. So using carbohydrate for the 40-kilometer time trial, you're getting quite good improvements there. So definitely good bang for your buck. If you just nail that nutrition on race day, you're going to be going faster. Uh, And the other nutrition sort of aspect they looked at was caffeine. And what they found was caffeine had similar effects in relatively untrained cyclists and elite cyclists. So no matter who you were, you got about a... Increase of about five percent in performance across the board. Your power increased about five percent. So, what does that look like in the real world? If you're a novice cyclist, you're getting about a thirty. Oh, sorry, an eighty-four second improvement in your time. Eighty-four second, which is which is huge. If you're a well-trained cyclist, uh, you are getting about a sixty-three second improvement. So, just over a minute. Uh, off your time and for elite level cyclists you're getting about a 55 second improvement in performance so caffeine again very good bang for your buck in terms of the input into it and the results that you get from it they also looked at the changes in uh, bike mass and also body mass and what they found here was that depending on the terrain if you had a flat time trial course Bicycle weight doesn't really matter at all if you had a bike that weighed 7 kgs versus 10 kgs on the lighter bike For a 42 kilometer time trial that is largely flat a novice cyclist is only going to improve their time by about three. Uh, sorry, 13 seconds 13 seconds a trained cyclist only about seven seconds and an elite athlete only about five seconds So you can change your frame and decrease your bike weight by three kilograms, but you're only going to get a very small improvement in performance. This is quite encouraging for those that ride, say, maybe an older, heavier bike or don't want to invest in the latest equipment. You're not actually going to get much return for the cost of investing in that. And I'm going to talk a little bit about this more uh, with some gear, and actually a conversion that shows how much dollars is spent per second saved. So we'll touch on that soon. Body weight, again, it, it depends on the terrain. If it's a flat course, body weight doesn't matter too much. But if it is on a grade or there's lots of hills, body weight starts to become more important. So what they have done here is on a flat course, if you decrease your body mass there's a likely change also in your body surface area, and this therefore changes your drag coefficient or how much drag, you know, wind resistance there is because it changes your frontal surface area. So what they've done is they've modeled that. If you decrease your body weight by 3 kilograms, for a novice cyclist, you're looking at about a 25-second improvement in your time over that 40 k's. 25 seconds is quite significant. If you're a trained cyclist, you're looking at about a 21-second improvement in your time by losing that 3, three kgs. And for the elite-level cyclist, you're looking at about a 19-second decrease in time. So the body mass change by three, by 3 kgs is not so much changing your power output or your power-to-weight ratio, even though it will, The factor that's changing your performance the most when you decrease your body mass on a flat course is a change in your body surface area, if that makes sense. So the other factor that they looked at was body position. And what they found was that if you refine your body position, you could decrease your time by about two to two and a half minutes which is significant when you think about it. So for athletes that are looking at saving a lot of time, getting that body position optimized with a good bike setup is key. And largely that's just refining your aerodynamic position, putting on aero bars and getting them set up for you. There's a sort of two to two and a half minute improvement in performance there. So next to training, this here is one of the biggest bang for your buck items that you can get. Thinking about other pieces of gear. Because everyone loves new gear, no doubt. And changing them can improve your performance. But by how much and by how much do you have to pay per second saved? So what I'm going to do now is dig into some data that came from aerodynamic studies um, in a wind tunnel. And what they show is that your biggest savings are going to come by adding some aero bars. And that goes back to that body position. So if you put some arrow bars on, them, on there and get set up, the cost is going to be about sixty four per second that you save. Per second that you save. So really good performance improvements with minimal cost. The next biggest bang for your buck is putting on some shoe covers. So if you just put shoe covers on versus no shoe covers, you're going to get about a 30 second improvement in performance over forty kilometers and in terms of dollar per savings you're looking at about a dollar sixty seven per second saved so again very cost effective ways of improving your performance here then the third best way to improve your performance in terms of cost per second saved is using a skin suit so these this test used are uh, regular jersey and shorts, regular cycling jersey and shorts, and they went to a skin suit. And it was actually the Nike Swift skin suit that they used, not just a standard skin suit, but a a standard skin suit is going to help a lot as well. And they improved that 40-kilometer time trial performance by 134 seconds, so just over two minutes. And the cost per second saved is around about $1.86. $1.86 eighty six. So, again, relatively low cost for quite high gains. Moving on from there, the next step up is to an aero helmet. And you're looking, if you just go from a regular road helmet, which is really designed for cooling, and they cool very well to stop you overheating on long rides, but they are not very aerodynamic. So, if you go to an aero helmet, you're looking at just over a minute improvement over a 40 clay. 40k time trial course and what does that work out on average um, you're looking at about three dollars per second saved so you can save a second by spending three bucks per second on that aero helmet from there the prices start to jump quite considerably the next thing in terms of bang for your buck are wheels if you can get a wheel set you're going to save around about, depending on what the wheel set is of course, somewhere between 30 to 42 seconds over that 40 kilometre time trial course. And depending on the cost of those wheels, you're looking at somewhere about $16 all the way through to about you know $34 per second saved. So uh, there's a rapid jump up when you start to look into these different hardwares, but there are performance gains to be had there and if you're looking for those marginal gains this would be a a very good place to start from there you can jump into a a wind tunnel get some wind tunnel testing done on you you're going to save about 56 seconds so just under a minute just under a minute the cost of that is quite expensive though so you're looking at around about 26 dollars per second saved if you're jumping in and doing some wind tunnel testing. So again, these performance improvements are coming with a price tag. So may only be for our elite level riders. And finally, if you want to really sort of step things up, the biggest expense in terms of seconds saved is actually an aerodynamic frame. Uh, If you change to an aerodynamic frame, you're only going to actually save about 17 seconds over a 40-kilometer time trial, which is quite small when you think about it. And when you think about the cost of a frame, that only comes into about $176 per second saved. So if you want to think about where to put your cash when you're looking at improving your performance, there's some tips on different gear. These effects may not be additive, so obviously if you keep improving your performance little bits little bits little bits by buying all this different gear doing all these different approaches eventually you're not going to get down to a point where you don't actually have to start the race because you've already finished in terms of your time savings you are always going to have to obviously pedal your bike to get there some of these may not be additive in terms of a change in your body position may actually reduce your power output on the bike due to suboptimal joint angle. So although that you're extremely aero, you may not be able to hold that aero position for long or it might actually impede your power output. So that's where getting um, someone with a very good you know, understanding of aerodynamics and biomechanics to set your bike up is crucial. And we might try and get someone on the podcast to talk about that in a bit more detail so you've got a bit more of an understanding about it. As a bit of a summary, it seems that the number one factor that's going to improve your performance the most is training. And I think everyone is probably aware of that. And that's maybe why you're listening to this podcast as well, to understand more about training. However, large improvements can be made through other areas. And some of those areas, in terms of talking bang for your buck, uh, those small changes in body position, so by putting on aero bars, you're getting a massive saving for minimal cost. Also, nailing your carbohydrate intake is key, and also potentially supplementing with caffeine. From there, things start to get a little bit more expensive when we start talking altitude training, and if we start thinking about changing uh, frames and wheels, the price goes up, the amount of improvement that you're getting is actually quite small when you look at it in terms of dollar per second saved. So I hope that helps. I hope that helps in terms of where you're going to put your money in terms of investing to improve performance. Obviously, these, these improvements solely apply to a time trial. Whereas in a road race, where there's drafting and tactics come into play, these changes in terms of seconds saved are quite different as well. If you've got any more questions, comments about improving your time trial performance and what you've invested your money in personally, post a comment below. I'm always keen to hear from you guys. Otherwise than that, that is Lessons from the Lab this week. Let's jump into Lessons from Life. This is a question that I've had a few times over the last few weeks from listeners, and it's also come up in conversation with a couple of the athletes that I coach directly. And that is about this mental toughness, uh, been able to break through that pain barrier. So I thought this would be an ideal topic for lessons from life. It's a really common question that always gets brought up about what's more important the body or the mind. Now a lot of people say that you know there's 50 you know for the body and the mind or some even say uh, in elite athletes as much as 90% of it is mental and you know 10% is only physical. Now, in actual fact, to be fair, to be at the top of your game, no matter what your level is, it, it's 100% physical and 100% mental. Any less than this, you're not going to maximize your full potential. And what I really wanted to dig into today is about breaking through that pain barrier. Because endurance sports and physical pain and suffering, if you want to term it, that sort of go hand in hand. You can't really have one without the other, and a lot of people think that as they improve their fitness, it's going to get easier, and the thing is, is it never actually gets any easier, you just go faster, and what I mean by that is that, yes, if you are sitting on a treadmill, or on a bike, stationary bike, and you have got it set at a, absolute workload let's say 10 kilometers an hour on the treadmill or let's say a 150 watts on the bike as you improve your fitness it is going to feel easier at that given workload but when it comes to race day or to training you're not gonna just return to those absolute workloads you're gonna push up into higher new relative workloads so it's always hard you always are pushing that limit you're always feeling that pain the guys and girls at the top of their game uh, the elites they feel the same amount of pain if not more when they're racing as hard as they possibly can as well so don't think that you're somehow not normal or you're an exception to the rule. Everyone hurts, everyone suffers. It's those that can suffer the most or push through that pain barrier the most that seem to be the most successful. All animals are designed to avoid pain or gravitate towards comfort. If you think back to our primal roots, it's all about survival. So if we're experiencing pain, there's a natural tendency to want to avoid it because usually pain is a signal that something is wrong, that something is impending on your survival. However, when we're exercising or training or racing, there is uh, an injury pain, which we always want to avoid. If you're feeling an injury pain, sharp, stabbing pains, Uh, You know, that feels like an injury. We obviously want to avoid that. But there is a certain level of pain that comes with training and racing hard that is not a negative thing. Or at least we don't want to interpret it as a negative thing. We want to be able to embrace that pain and rethink how we are actually interpreting it. So when we start to push hard and your legs start to burn and your lungs are screaming at you, Just remember this is not a negative thing. This is a positive pain. It means that you're pushing hard and you're going fast. The harder you push, the more it's going to hurt and the faster you're going to go. So instead of focusing on how much it hurts and how awful it is, try embracing that burning in your legs and see how much you can make it burn. How hard can you push? How much power can you produce? How fast can you go? In cycling and running and pretty much all endurance sports, it seems that there is almost a linear relationship between pain and performance. The faster you go, the more it hurts. Those people that go the fastest can hurt the most. So it's all very well in saying just embrace this pain, But if it is something you can embody, you can use it to great effect. And what I want to do is just dig into a little bit of science around this. So hopefully that helps you reframe your thinking. The human body has a lot of inbuilt survival mechanisms and a lot of redundancy built into it to prolong and maximize our chance of survival. And one of those survival mechanisms is that your body, Body is governed by the mind, the central governor theory. Now, there's some research out there that shows that when you feel that you're at your maximum, you cannot physically push any harder, you're only actually at 80% of your true max. 80% of your true max. And no doubt you've heard stories of you know mothers finding superhuman strength to lift a car like a car wreck off their trapped children or unthinkable feats of endurance and survival situations. In these cases, people are able to tap into that extra 20%. In the sporting world, you can see this all the time at the finish line. Where those who have hit the wall, say an hour ago, and have been creeping along, are able to put in a sprint finish. If they had really hit the wall, reached their physical capacity, they should not have been able to put in a sprint finish. And then there's the opposite to that, where you see the top performers who collapse multiple times in the final kilometre of a race. But they get up and keep staggering on and collapse again. Get back up, keep staggering on, and collapse again. There's some brilliant footage of Hawaii Ironman. I can't remember what year it is, but there's two athletes uh, sprinting to the line on their hands and knees, collapsing, getting up, crawling, sprinting, trying to do anything, staggering towards the line. These people have found that true physical limit of their bodies. Their mind has tapped allowed their body to tap into that extra 20%. So if you really want it and you're prepared to suffer for it, that extra 20% is there. It's there for you. It's there for the taking. So how do we tap into it? It's really hard to think when you're going maximal that you've still got another 20% left because you're on your limit. It hurts. Everything hurts. And to think, You've still got 20%. How are you going to tap into that? Well, what I really like to do is get athletes to work on their mental skills during and using physical practice. I usually find athletes are very physical in nature. They like doing. So if you give them an exercise, say to sit down and go through some mental skills, they can't grasp that concept very well. But when you're out there doing it, incorporating mental skills into your training i find that's very very effective so here is what we're gonna do during your next interval session what i want you to do is when it feels like you're pushing hard you're hurting you're at your max just think to yourself that you've still got 20 percent in that reserve and i want you to focus on pushing into that 20 percent but rather than going the whole hog and just going 20% harder, I just want you to focus on packing it up 1%. Just go 1% harder. If you're on the bike, just bring that pedal speed up 1%. If you're running, just push 1% harder. If that 1% is too much for you to handle, I just want you to push half a percent harder in that moment. Just half a percent. Just... A bit harder than what you were previously going. This makes that 20% a lot more manageable. Start chipping away. Start eating in to that 20%. 1% at a time. So I really like to use this uh, in the final stages of intervals. uh, And just try pushing that 1% harder or half a percent harder every 10 seconds or if it's a short interval session or if it's a longer interval session try building half a percent more half a percent more you know every 30 seconds work a little harder dig a little deeper and that's going to help you develop your physical performance because you're training harder obviously but it's going to also go a really really long way to developing your mental ability to push through that physical pain also in race day Think to yourself, am I going the hardest, most sustainable intensity that I can right now? Now, I'm not suggesting that you want to go, you know, all out and sprint the whole race because that's impossible, but are you going as hard and as fast as you can sustainably right at this minute? Would you be able to lift it half a percent, one percent? If you can, then do it if not keep digging in where you are it's all about developing that ability to suffer now i use that word suffer in an interesting way because a lot of people always talk about you know the suffer fest the you know how hard it was they were just suffering through you know long endurance races whatever it might be but when you really think about it it's not you're not suffering really at all First of all, you chose to be there, so it's your fault, so take ownership of it. And second of all, you can make that suffering stop at any time. Just stop. Stop running, stop riding, you're done. It stopped. And when you actually think of real suffering in the real world, you know, you're not in a war zone, you've got plenty of food to eat, you've got fresh water, all of these things that we term suffering in sport, you know are really very minute in the in the scheme of things so don't blow your pain uh, during training and racing you know up into this big suffer fest it's very controllable you're in charge of it you're responsible for it so take ownership of it and embrace it because it's not pain it's speed and it's power so if you can reframe those thoughts in your mind it goes a long long way to being able to push harder now these are concepts that have come from the performance temple psychology ebook and this is part of the performance temple uh, series if you want to download a free copy of the performance temple introduction just head over to the exponential Performance Coaching website, and that's simply www.exponentialperformancecoaching.com, and you'll find a free download there on the homepage. If you want to download a copy of the extended Performance Temple Psychology Handbook, you can do that for only $2. What I'm going to do is in the show notes over at Exponential Performance Coaching, under the podcast, under this episode, I'm going to put a link where you can get the Performance Temple Psychology Handbook for only $2. And what you're going to learn on that is some more strategies to push through that pain, how to control your nerves, and how to harden up and bring your mind up to the same level as your body so that on race day you can achieve your peak performance. So that uh, that Psychology Handbook is usually $7.00. So we're giving you that to you for $2 if you head over and check that out. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes over at the Exponential Performance website. That's it. That's Lessons from Life for today. Done. Hi, Maddie. And Jackson here. First time caller, long time listener. Been loving your podcast. Keep it up. Hey, I got a quick question for you. Just wondering, why do you use a mountain bike on these brevets um, and endurance bike packing races, uh, as opposed to um, the likes of a cycle cross bike, uh, which you can use, you know, on the light off-road type stuff? Love to hear your answer. Cheers, mate. Cheers for your question, Ant. So when I do these. Um, all the bike packing brevets that I've done in the past, I have used a mountain bike, uh, and that's been a 29 inch um, carbon frame giant XTC one. Um, and if you want to check out my full setup, I will post a link over on the show notes at exponentialperformancecoaching.com under the episode seven podcast where I go through all of the gear that I take, including my bike, tires. Um, and my full setup so if you want to check that out go over and check them out at the show notes but why do I use a mountain bike there are some people that use cycle cross bikes and in the uh, length of New Zealand the tour of Aotearoa 3000 kilometers from Cape Reinga all the way down to Bluff at the bottom of New Zealand there were a couple of riders who used uh, cycle cross bikes and they they performed quite well There was quite a lot of rough off-road terrain and I was when I was riding and I was thinking man I'm glad I'm on a mountain bike here and also there were a lot of people on mountain bikes that had a rigid front fork a rigid carbon fork um and i was I was pleased that I had um some suspension up the front on my f- on front fork because some of the terrain was super rough. so I guess the main reason why I use a mountain bike is because the going is is so rough while you know you are faster on the road, the body it takes an absolute beating even on a mountain bike over this rough stuff so i I imagine on a cycle cross bike you'd be you know you'd be beaten up quite badly. In terms of the Great Southern Brevet, I don't think from memory there was anybody riding a cycle cross bike. Um, it's just not suited to cycle cross bike really at all. It's mainly really, really rough um, with a few flat, smooth sections of joining roads in between, but mostly it's just big, rugged, tough terrain that if you were on a cycle cross bike, you'd You know, you'd be pushing it to its limit in terms of its strength and um, ability to take the knocks. And then also you'd be pushing yourself to the limit in terms of riding, um, but also just soaking up the extra bumps and and the rough stuff and just destroying your upper body and your lower body from it. I know a lot of guys ride uh, like a dropped bar mountain bike. So I've still got the, the chunkier mountain bike tires on it but it's actually got a sort of a cyclocross bar setup. They call them wood chipper bars. Um, And that seems to provide really nice comfortable hand position for long, long hours in the saddle. But yeah, for me, um, I personally use a mountain bike. Um, The Kiwi Brevet, which runs out of Blenheim every second year here in New Zealand, I know a lot of people use cyclocross bikes on that Brevet simply because um, there's long road sections and short rough sections so it's quite well suited um, to a cycle cross bike but the brevets that I've done seem to be better suited for a mountain bike lots of rough stuff with minimal long um, smooth you know sections that are more suited to a cycle cross bike between them so I hope that answers your question and Definitely um, get over and check out all of my gear set up for both the Tour of Aotearoa and the Great Southern Brevet. I've got everything in there. It's all laid out. Just remember, if you've got any questions, please send them in via voice message, and I'll do my best to answer them. I hope you found today's episode of the Exponential Performance Podcast helpful. Please, if you have any questions at all, send me through a voice message. If you send me through a voice question, what I'm going to do is give you a a free copy of the Exponential Performance Handbook series. So rather than having to buy it with the offer that I just gave you for the Psychology Handbook, you can get all of them for free just by sending me in a voice question. I love to hear from you guys. If you haven't done so already, make sure you get over and check out the Exponential Performance Coaching Facebook page. I post lots of updates on there, so make sure you don't miss out on anything by going over and hitting the like button on there. So until next time, get out there and train hard, but most importantly, train smart. Connect with your training, ask questions, keep investigating How can you refine things to keep improving your performance, not just physically, but also mentally? And I look forward to chatting with you next week.